this is the Q Podcast show, a show about ideas, innovations, and thinkers. Welcome, everyone. My name is Sri Krishnamurti. I am the CEO and founder of Quant University, and I'll be the host of the show. We are in the second week of the Quant University Summer School 2020, and this week we had Dr. Joseph Simonian from Autonomous Investing Corporation, and he's going to be speaking about modular machine learning for model validation. So let's get going. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are in the world. I hope you are continuing to stay safe. I mean, this is becoming like our standard uh, thing for the past, gosh, four more four months now already. Um, and uh, you know, with COVID nineteen, you know, we are all stuck at our homes, uh, but we continue to learn, we continue to innovate, we continue to uh, try and see how we can, uh, you know, think about, um, you know, contributing in various ways to the world. So. Uh, with that effort, we are uh, running the Quant University Summer School. We had high hopes of getting all the people together and getting all these classes going on. But uh, with COVID-19, we are doing this whole uh, summer school online. And we are very grateful to all the speakers who are contributing to this effort. And every week we have had uh, speakers come down and uh, share their knowledge, share their research, share their uh, you know, uh, immense uh, work they've been doing in various areas. And today we are fortunate to have uh, Dr. Joseph Simonian uh, talking about modular machine learning for model validation. And I welcome you all. For people who don't know us, uh, we are Quant University. We are based out of Boston. We are, we are a data science and machine learning uh, focused advisory. And we've been primarily focused on quantitative finance for many years. And uh, we started out as a consultancy, primarily doing model validation during the stress testing and uh, the era wherein a lot of banks were interested in you know, building out capabilities in terms of stress testing and model validation. And we have slowly started to work more and more towards uh, incorporating machine learning practices and also answering the big question on how do you think about model validation in the day of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. So we run a lot of uh, boot camps and one of the themes of the summer school this year has been to incorporate a lot of machine learning and model validation and model risk management team. So we have a cohort of people from more than 12 countries taking this course. And uh, we have regulators, we have people from consulting companies, we have people who are bankers, uh, risk managers, uh, model risk analysts. So it's been a confluence of uh, you know, various thoughts which we are kind of incorporating and learning from each other as we go. And uh, uh, in addition to that, we have our traditional machine learning course, and we also have a course for uh, data science and machine learning for people who are getting into the field. So if you're interested in knowing more, I've provided a link for the summer school, so please uh, uh, take a look at it, and if it's of interest, contact us, and we'll help you with the registration process. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to uh, uh, invite Joseph for today's session, and uh, uh, we will be spending the next 30 to 40 minutes talking about modular machine learning for model validation. And the way I came to know about uh, Joseph's this work was that you know, he uh, uh, used to be at NetAxis, and we had done some work on NetAxis many years ago. And uh, recently, he wrote a very good paper 
on uh, the topic of model machine learning for model validation in the Journal of Data Science, and I was very fascinated by his work. So I contacted him to see if he could share his uh, uh, research and knowledge, and uh, he graciously accepted it. So thank you so much, Joseph, for uh, you know presenting today. Uh, so for people who don't know Joseph, uh, Joseph has a, a very long uh, track record in the investment field. Uh, he was at Acadian, and prior to that, uh, he was at Netaxis, and uh, he was also at Fidelity and uh, JP Morgan and Pimco. So he has kind of looked at all possible asset classes. I don't know if you have any crypto and other new fintech uh, aspects into your portfolio of assets, uh, uh, your research on Joseph. But uh, uh, so he's also uh, contributing a lot to the community by you know, being a, a co-editor to the Journal of uh, Financial Data Science and also staying active in the community by supporting and sharing his knowledge with the community. Um, so in today's topic, Joseph will be sharing his knowledge on uh, and the research on modular machine learning for model validation. The slides of today's presentation and today's video will be available on the Q Academy website. And without further ado, I will uh, hand over the baton to you, Joseph. Thanks, Sri. Uh, and uh, so let uh, me make you the host. Okay. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you. Um, okay, let me just share my screen here. And um, okay, so it looks like we're ready to go. Um, so the topic um, of my presentation today is actually related to um, a topic that has been quite popular and, and sort of pre prominent in a lot of discussions um, since the advent of um, you know, and, and, and increased use of data science uh, in investing. And that question is essentially, um, are traditional statistical methods uh, rivals, partners, um, you know, are they going to replace, um, you know, what is the relationship between machine learning and traditional statistical methods? In other words, you know, you know it's, it's logical to think that if you have a new and more cutting edge paradigm or framework, that over time, that will replace the tools that you've been using. It's happened in science before, uh, including social science. And it's not a wild thought to think that uh, this will happen again. Um, but it's also logical to think that, hey, you know, since these are both, uh, both paradigms are statistically rooted, statistically based, um, there may be um, a partnership or a symbiosis that can develop or um, be utilized by practitioners um, uh, in a fruitful manner. And so, as I start to think a lot about this, and, and, and you know, and you start to read some of the literature, I think what happens is initially when you read research on data science and machine learning as it's applied um, to finance, what you usually see or you often see is um, that um, they are. Um, these techniques are presented as, as essentially rivals or replacements. So to give you a concrete example, um, you know, you often see econometric studies um, where a traditional model like a GARCH or, or a vector autoregression or what have you is essentially horse raced against um, a machine learning or data science methodology. And the conclusion of many of these papers is that the data science and machine learning um, uh, techniques are better based on various um, measures and statistics. And therefore, uh, the traditional statistical methodology should be replaced. 
I think there was a couple problems with that. Now, now before I get to uh, you know my view, uh, so what has happened is is in the industry uh, essentially, uh, what has happened is that there are a few camps you know out there. One camp says yes, that's the correct mode uh, of operations. In other words, um, these are much more um, uh, uh, you know sophisticated techniques. They are much more geared towards certain things that investors care about, like prediction, which they are. And therefore, um, the old way of doing statistics, whether it's with linear regressions or more sophisticated methods, uh, you know, should be essentially retired uh, from investment practice. Now, there's another camp um, uh, that thinks that, no, you can actually use both side by side. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know, each tool or each family of tools is uh, good for um, certain uh, applications and uh, you know you gotta you know just like you're if you're building a house or doing any other kind of construction process pro uh, project you've got to use the tools that uh, are needed for the task at hand. And so I started thinking about this. I, I realized that both camps, uh, even though they seem that they're like they're totally opposed, they're actually um, uh, in agreement on one thing, which is that. Uh, traditional statistical methods are uh, essentially different, uh, essentially different, not different details or, or you know, some of the ways in which they implement or execute um, uh, various uh, functions, but they're fundamentally different. And so that's really an either or. And I started to think to myself, is there a way to devise a methodology where you could do something, for example, model validation, where each of the um, uh, paradigms or frameworks, types of paradigm, types of framework, traditional techniques and machine learning techniques, each plays a certain role, a specific role in an overarching model validation process. And to do that, I start to think about, um, you know, essentially what, um, how practitioners, um, you know, think and how we uh, conduct research um, um, and actually, um, uh, actually implement and utilize uh, various techniques. And so what happened there is that I realized that what are the advantages of traditional techniques, right? And I've spoken about this, not just in the model about model uh, modular machine learning paper, but also in, in a paper I've written with uh, Frank Fabose called Triumph of the Empiricists uh, and another paper I wrote with Marcos Lopez de Prado and Frank um, in the journal Portfolio Management. A lot of my writings allude to this, that traditional econometric techniques are very good at explaining the past. So think about things like uh, a traditional um, regime switching model like I use in this paper, or a vector autoregression or any kind of econometric model. Although, you know, when you read a textbook, it seems like they have a dual purpose to explain and to predict. As a matter of course, as a matter of fact, uh, traditional econometrics uh, uh, frameworks really have a poor track record uh, at prediction. If you just look at the history of regime switching models, for example, they have a essentially a very, very poor track record of, of uh, predicting and adding value, certainly to an investment process, right? Uh, the, the, I have another paper I've written where we apply uh, machine learning to uh, regime switching called Minsky versus Machine. And in that paper, I essentially um, allude to the fact that, or I mentioned that the reality that every Wall Street firm talks about regimes Many firms build regime switching models, but very few portfolio management teams actually use them to, to trade.
right? And one of the main reasons is because their track record is so poor. And you don't have to take my word for it. There have been numerous studies over the years uh, by you know eminent econometricians and so on uh, documenting this fact. But what does that mean? Does that mean we have to throw out our econometrics textbooks and never go to a statistics class ever again? No, because um, what are traditional statistical techniques good at? They are good at explaining the past, right? And so one of their primary functions, which they actually fulfill, I think, very well, is that they are able to explain the causes for let's say, a particular time slice or episode, uh, the causes or the drivers, if you will, if you don't want to get too metaphysical with causation, but the drivers of economic and financial events. So they're good at dissecting the past and providing, you know, you know, users of those models with insights into, you know, what caused or, or, or likely caused a certain events to unfold and certain economic phenomena to way to behave the way that they did um, when the observations and measurements were made. So why is that useful to us? Well, it's useful to us uh, because um, the, the, one of the drawbacks, uh, if you will, of um, tradition of, excuse me, of machine learning and data science is that they are not very theoretically rooted, right? In other words, um, if you even go back to a famous paper uh, written by Leo Bryman, where he talks about the two statistical culture, the two data cultures, which I mentioned in this paper as well. He, you know, he's essentially promoting, um, you know, the, 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 the culture that, he, that data science and machine learning uh, are a part of, um, which is essentially the culture that is rooted in prediction versus model building and theorizing. And he sort of uh, argues against the utility of the traditional model, which is much more prevalent, even in Wall Street, which is the, you know, the, the statistics that you learn in the econometric classroom or a, or a traditional statistics classroom. So these two cultures, uh, you know, they, they would seem to clash, but they're actually very good at different things. So Bryman is right in that in terms of prediction and pattern recognition, and if you want to be uh, sort of a wise guy about a data mining, right, um, uh, data science and machine learning are very, very good. I think one of the drawbacks to these frameworks, and it's not a, a, a crippling drawback by any stretch of the imagination, but it's one that has to be addressed, is the, the issue that they are often heuristic methods that are utilized. There is obviously some statistical theory that drives these frameworks, of course. Uh, they're not just out of the air, but they are much less rooted in theory, especially economic theory, right? Uh, and actually even less so in statistical theory to a certain extent, than things even like an OLS regression, right? Where you think about a, a, a linear regression, it's got so many assumptions, it's got so many uh, criteria to be valid, right? And these are often thought of as a hindrance and they, they can be to, to conducting research. But the good part about rules and constraints and, and, and so on is that they, they put, provide guardrails around research um, uh, efforts. And um, machine learning and data science, one of the beautiful things about them is that they're very free form uh, and open-ended and they're not as theoretically rooted. The, the drawback to that though, is that um, they're not very good at analyzing the past, right? Or as good at analyzing the past as a more theory uh, uh, anchored um, framework like traditional econometrics. And so think about if you just want a sort of a practical example of how this, why this matters. If you go to any portfolio management team, whether it's a, whether it's a fundamental team or a quantitative team, 
they're going to have what I call a mental model, okay? Uh, a mental model is essentially a model of how the world, the financial world works, right? In other words, you know, if you're a macro manager, you may think that GDP and inflation are the most important drivers. You may think of other things or maybe, and maybe a geopolitics, but, you know, at the end of the day, what drives your decision-making are a few of these elements, right? And it may be a, a more sophisticated mental model than I'm describing now, obviously. If you're an equity manager, you'll, you may look at things like earnings and, and volatility and momentum, you know, various things and factors, you know, considerations and factors go into the building of a mental model. And, you know, machine learning and data science is just not designed to capture that, right? Whereas econometrics is because it explicitly calls for uh, depositing, if you will, of drivers or causes um, or variables um, that, that, you know, are assumed to drive and, and sort of dictate economic and financial uh, performance or phenomena. And so um, I realized that I could build out a methodology that proceeded in modules where each of the frameworks plays a specific role. So in the first module, um, I essentially utilize econometrics and I do it in a way to carve up the universe. So for example, um, in traditional in traditional machine learning, when you do things like model validation, so the, 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 I, I apply it to model validation, although modular machine learning arguably can be applied to many things. Um, but I apply it to model validation because I had a traditional framework, which was the fundamental law of active management that I thought was screaming to be uh, for this framework to be applied to because um, essentially the fundamental law, if I could just uh, footnote this for a second, a lot of the research of the fundamental law try to uh, set up and analyze the framework as a way of uh, reconciling um, the performance that investors see in the in the world with the assumptions of the original model. So essentially the idea was how can we sort of complicate up or sophisticate up uh, the basic fundamental law uh, so that what we observe in the world is coherent or is congruent or coincides with um, the basic assumptions of this of this rule of this law. And to me, the fundamental law always was useful because it actually provided a groundwork for actually validating the signals that you're thinking about using versus reconciling the performance that you see with the assumptions of, of, of the model itself, right? And so I realized that, oh, this is great. I can actually make the fundamental law a useful thing in terms of vetting signals um, for a process. And the way you do that just to go back to the main uh, topic here, is uh, in the first stage, I essentially utilize a traditional econometric framework in the paper. I use a regime switching framework, uh, which you, know, you can find on, you know, in stats models or any Python application, uh, right, um, to carve up the world. Why is that useful? Well, it's useful not only because we want to figure out, you know, what happened and why it happened and so on, potentially, but because in traditional model validation, when you are using things like folds, right? I'm assuming many of the viewers uh, of the audience is familiar with uh, K-fold um, uh, validation and, and uh, other types of, uh, of ways of cutting up a sample or subsamples to validate your signals. Um, essentially, the choice of the size of the sample or subsample to, to validate on is arbitrary, right? In other words, there's no economic, anything economic informing why you use a certain subsample or sample to conduct your model validation on, right? You essentially, because of because in economics and finance, where are essentially data poor, you try to you usually try to use 
uh, as much data as you can uh, and cross your fingers that you get some results. But in reality, you know, that's not ideal because within that larger sample that you may be utilizing for validation, there may be um, different economic episodes or states that are relevant and may actually skew results one way or the other. And so what I do in the first module is essentially utilize uh, regime switching to tell me, okay, these observations uh, are in one category, let's say a, 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 a contractionary environment, and these observations are in an expansionary environment. Therefore, this when you have two, I, I'm gonna, you know, the, the methodology gives me two subsamples, which I can then use for separate validations of signals. In other words, I can just I can take then the expansionary regime subsample and test signals on that to, to, to figure out how do my signals, my potential signals work in an expansionary regime. And then conversely, I can take the, the contractionary subsample and test my signals there and figure out how they fare in those environments. And so right off the bat, uh, traditional econometrics is informing the model validation process because it's telling me how many uh, observations to use um, within my uh, subsamples in my, in my validation, right, for each different test. Also, the number of folds is there because when you use a regime switching model, what will happen is it'll go through time and it'll say, okay, uh, from this year to this year, you had this regime, then it switched off and it went to that regime. And so you can actually take uh, each of those, these, these states that the, the model goes back and forth from as uh, different folds. And you can actually use those as, as uh, individual folds that comprise a larger subsample uh, with which you conduct model validation, okay? Now, um, there's a, a secondary benefit, right, to, to doing it this way because now what happens is that when you use what's called a time series cross-validation, so let me, let, me, let me roll it back for a second. Traditional cross-validation is not really applicable to um, finance. Why is that? Because the, the main reason is that chronology or the temporal dynamics, if you want to be fancy about it, matter a lot in finance and economics. In other words, uh, unlike in many areas of natural science, you cannot use future data uh, to validate uh, the past, right? Because there's a time dependency, because the future observations have a memory, if you will, of what has happened in the past, and therefore conducting a validation like K-fold, uh, where you just shuffle things back and forward, and you can have the situations where you're training on the future and then testing the past, that can be valid. Uh, it's often innocuous in natural science applications, but in finance and economics, it's a big no-no, if, if, if you will, because uh, that memory is there, right? That, that time dependency is there. And because of that, um, something has been developed called time series cross-validation, and there are various ways of doing this. The most important rule, though, is that you know, you know, you're always going forward in time. So you may carve your subsample into 10 folds uh, and the first two are used to validate, and uh, excuse me, to train. And then, uh, but then, then the third one is used to uh, validate and test and so on and so forth. The, but the point being is that as long as you're always validating and testing on, on the future and training on the past, you'll be fine. Now, there's still an issue though, because if you just put these folds side by side, there'll be uh, what they call leakage of, of some of the memory from the past into the future, 
right? In other words, you may be validating and testing on a future subsample or future fold, but that data may be polluted, if you will, with knowledge of the past that may influence what's going on. And so what people have done, many researchers have written about this, they essentially what they insert is what they call blocks in between um, the folds. Essentially, the blocks are things that you don't even measure. So you assume that um, whatever the number is, five, 10, four observations, we're going to not look at those. We're not going to start our validation until, you know, essentially T plus four, if you will. Uh, and, and in doing so, we will essentially erase any memory of that this slice of the future has of the past. But again, you can do statistical tests on, on what is the best or optimal block size to, to use in, in this type of valid cross validation, but it's not economically informed. But lo and behold, regime switching actually um, gives you some insight into what number to pick. Because when you use a, an econometric model <clears throat> like regime switching, uh, there's an autoregressive term that is utilized, okay? And that term, that's a number, can be taken as the a value for the block because the autoregressive term in a regime switching model Essentially, uh, the implication is that it's the amount of time needed for um, a signal to forget, right? And there's different ways of describing it. Some people may disagree with me, but essentially that's, that's I think, a fairly uncontroversial interpretation of, of the autoregressive, autoregressive term in regime switching models. And so the, just naturally the framework gives you a block size to insert between folds uh, when you're using time series cross-validation. So right there, and then you see that there is a clear benefit to econometrics that in no way impedes the, um, the um, application of machine learning um, and data science actually helps the process along. Okay, now in my remaining time, I wanna actually get to the, that's, that's the basic process. In the first module you use um, an econometric model to carve up the world essentially into different subsamples, different folds, and to generate the blocks for a, a block time series cross-validation. And the second fold and the third fold, you measure signal strength and signal variance, and then you draw your conclusion. So each of the, and each of the modules is drawing directly from the module that precedes it. So once the information is generated from the econometric model, that information then dumps into the second module where the signal strength is tested, and then that dumps in the third module where you do the, uh, the final touches and you figure out um, essentially the um, validity or potential validity or strength of the signal that you're considering, right? Now, the information ratio is a big part of the fundamental law of active management, right? It's, all, it's constructed all around that. And the idea is that um, the slide that you're looking at right now is a somewhat more a sophisticated variation of the information ratio um, where you also consider uh, IC, uh, the, uh, the variance of the information coefficient, uh, right? Information co coefficient is essentially um, the strength of the signal, uh, if you will, uh, in the original articulations of the fundamental law, it's taken to be the correlation of the alpha with a signal, uh, but there are different interpretations of it. Um, I uh, use, well, I'll, I'll explain how we use it. Again, we use the IC in a completely forward-looking manner where the IC is measured um, in terms of cross-validation, right? So um, 
but before I get to that, so but the, the IC variance is used uh, as a way of uh, further um, evaluating um, signal strength because um, a signal may have a strong IC, but if it's very um, uh, erratic in its behavior, that may be um, um, less favorable to a PM team uh, or if you're building a quant process than a, a more well-behaved signal, even if the uh, predictive value is strong, okay? So, um, so let me just repeat before I move on. So again, first um, uh, module is the subsample classification that's done via econometrics. The second module is signal quality. Uh, we take regime specific subsets from one uh, the first module, and then we use it as inputs to block time series cross-validated regressions, and we derive regime-specific measures of signal quality. Uh, in the context of FL, uh, the fundamental law, these would be the IC and the IC variance, okay? And so uh, we essentially uh, utilize uh, predictive regressions, um, and we utilize um, univariate regressions on a given factor uh, and that's how we 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 were able to use uh, uh, the the same metrics correlation and so on that the original fundamental law utilizes. Okay, and then signal diversification uh, is the third module, which is um, basically in the paper we utilize um, uh, something called affinity propagation, which is a clustering methodology. And signal diversification speaks to the fact that. Um, if you have, you know, don't for, remember our lessons from building factor models. A factor model or a, has to be um, not only explain uh, the target variable uh, to the greatest degree possible, but it also has to be as parsimonious as possible, another big word, right, which means as elegant or simple as possible. And so signal diversification is intended to measure that if you have a set of signals, how similar are they? Because here's the thing. If you have very similar measures and one is stronger than the other, then there's redundancy there. You don't, you may not want to use that that second signal unless there's some um, strong economic case for it, which often there isn't when uh, you apply a methodology like we do. So what we essentially is we take the signals that we're using in our framework in our example, and we we use clustering uh, by means of affinity propagation to figure out what clusters do our individual signals fall into. And our features are the ICs and IC variants. So it's a completely statistical way of, of figuring out um, what clusters they fall into. Affinity propagation, if I could say one thing about it, is useful for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is that you don't have to predetermine the number of clusters. It does that for you, right? Which sort of defeat the point of our of our, our third module here if we had to say, oh, there's three clusters or two. So that's the nice thing about affinity propagation is that it actually tells you, okay, there are two clusters, Three, three of the signals fall into one of them. Uh, you know, you know, the other signals fall into the other cluster, and therefore uh, you got three signals that are redundant, and therefore then you can make a decision whether you discard some of them or not, right? So signal diversification is a very important part of uh, this process. It's also an important part of the fundamental law of active management because that is concerned with independent bets or, or views. So we're trying to be loyal or faithful to the uh, intuitions and assumptions of the fundamental law, but uh, we're trying to fashion a usable uh, framework. Okay, um, so I've been I've gone over this a little bit about Bryman, um, especially I've gone over uh, the the advantages and disadvantages of 
um, regime switching and versa versus data science or traditional econometrics versus data science. I want to get to the, um, um, okay, so that's, I think I've been through all of it. Um, I want to say one last thing though, is that um, in the, you can read the paper uh, for yourselves. Uh, you can find it on the GFDS website. Um, uh, but I will say that um, in the results, what we found, we used the FAMA French factors as um, our, 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 our signals, including the, uh, uh, an autoregressive um, uh, 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 factor as well. And we found that uh, really in the way that we looked at it, and again, this is not a definitive outcome, as I mentioned in the paper, but when you subject the FAMA French factors uh, to a model validation procedure like MML, you find that really the only factor, uh, at least the way we looked at it, that had predictive value was the market factor. Some of the other ones in, in the, uh, and, the, and the results differed in the expansionary and contractionary regimes, but um, you know, you know, the, the few of the other factors showed signs of life uh, in one or, or other regime. But in general, uh, one of the conclusions of the paper was that when you subject a lot of commonly used factors uh, to a rigorous analysis, you realize that in the raw form, they're not that useful for uh, prediction. And so what does that mean? Never use FAMA French again? No, of course not. Uh, it means that once you, when you utilize these factors, it means that you have to do a lot of other kinds of work to make sure that they're being implemented in a, in a portfolio management process uh, in a way where they can add value and information. So just going to Ken French's website, downloading and thinking that you're gonna make a, a lot of money by just wholesale applying these signals um, is not going to work. Now, that may seem obvious, but uh, it's something that you often miss if you read a lot of um, literature, especially in traditional finance, where um, it's assumed that if, if, if uh, uh, various factors pass you know, basic statistical tests um, or even, even you know, more rigorous tests, they can be utilized to predict. But again, I think one of the attractions of uh, machine learning and data science is there is a so much emphasis on prediction because it's difficult. And if I'll say one final comment until we go to the Q&A is that um, it's important to keep that in mind, that when you take statistics classes and econometrics classes, uh, whether at QuantU or anywhere else, you have to understand that the primary emphasis, whether it's implicit often, is explanation, not prediction. So when you move to the predictive and forecasting realm, a lot more has to be done and a lot, lot many different things have to be done to actually render uh, what seems to be a useful signal, um, you know, in hindsight to a, a forward looking signal that is useful, right? So just keep that in mind. And that's why, again, ultimately I'm a, a supporter of machine learning and data science, uh, you know, in, in finance, because I think uh, that it really speaks to uh, what we do, right? doesn't mean you have to throw out economic intuition. You have to keep that always in the background, sometimes in the foreground, but uh, it's important to remember that we are in a predictive enterprise. Now with that, I'll end uh, the, the main section of, of, of the conversation. Thank you. Uh, we can move on to Q&A, Shri, and uh, happy to take any questions on any topics that I'm qualified to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for the excellent presentation, Joseph. Um, so uh, we will take questions. So please uh, type in your questions in the chat window and we will be monitoring it and we'll be able to ask those questions uh, to Joseph. 
Um, so Joseph, while we are waiting for questions, I actually had a couple of questions. Yeah, go. Uh, first of all, I want to mention that affinity propagation is one of the topics in the machine learning summer school. So our students who are taking the course are being exposed to using affinity propagation and they're mm -hmm. having the Python code and they're doing the clustering and they're comparing it with other clustering methodologies. So it's uh, contextual that you kind of brought it up in today's discussion. Um, now, uh, in, in terms of uh, one of the biggest challenges we, we actually had a meeting um, last Sunday with uh, many participants who are taking the summer school. And one of the uh, biggest challenges uh, people were talking about is stability of model, now, especially a machine learning model, which is data-driven. Mm -hmm. And once you build the model, so how frequently do you tune your model? And uh, you know, how do you make sure that you know, you're setting up the tuning interval on a regular basis? That way you can monitor the health of the model as you go. Um, I don't know if you have any specific thoughts. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I mean, I, it also relates to what we talked about today. I mean, I, I think if you are driving, if you will, without um, you know an econ economic copilot, if you will, an econometric or economic or finance theory copilot, it becomes harder, and it also becomes, I think, the case that you have to um, retune your hyperparameters or other mm -hmm. uh, elements of your framework more because you don't really know when you know, the underlying conditions are changing, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's essentially a statistical process and you may think, okay, we'll just set a schedule every month or every week, we'll retune and we'll see what comes out of it. I don't think that's a bad thing to do, but I also think that if you have an econometric process, uh, you know, working side by side with you, then you can get to whether, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, you know, you can be informed, hey, look, we may be moving into a different state here, right? A different regime, whether it's an interest rate regime, it's an economic regime, it's it's a regulatory regime, a trade regime. Then you can say maybe let's let's actually retune the model. Let's see what what you know what we can do. What what uh, what modifications may need to be done. So again, I think that you know I would say two things. One is I I mean I'm just you know I like to be organized about such things. So I would probably set a regular. Um, uh, a process, whether it's monthly or quarterly, of you know, re-looking at models, retuning them, re-optimizing them, you know, if you will, um, in terms of the hyperparameters and other elements that go into them. Um, but beyond that, I would also intervene, if you will, when there is a perceived uh, shift or regime shift, whether, like I said, different kinds of regimes or different kinds of fundamental economic changes. So, for example, we have an election coming up. No matter who the winner is. You know, I think that would be a good time to take a breath and now assess, you know, you know, what's happened over the last X months. Let's mm -hmm. retest our models, see what has changed, and then think to yourself, okay, we got those answers now. Do we think this is going to work going forward? You know, what adjustments should we make if we think things are going to be different a little bit um, and, uh, and go on from there? So, I, again, I don't think you have to be sort of um, hypersensitive to this, but I think mm -hmm. that having a discipline about it is good. And I definitely think, um, you know, this interventions that are economically driven is, is a very good idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we it. have a question from uh, Mikhail Karapetian. Uh, I hope I pronounced the name right. So the yeah. question is, what are the methods to overcome the leakage problem that you mentioned, except for time series specific cross-validation? And the second question is, how well does reinforcement machine learning methods um, how can it be used to overcome this particular problem? Okay, so very good questions. I think the first one is just easier to answer. Well, it's quicker answer because um, 
I think, uh, like I mentioned in, 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 the, in the talk, I think it's a real problem, um, um, you know, uh, because this memory issue is there, right? And in reality, you know, like I say, I say to uh, you know other students that I, I teach, you know, believe it or not, the the price of a stock today, in some way, presumably has the memory of a presidential election 1980, right? Because there's a there's a path dependency there that is very real. Now, obviously, that there's been a massive decay <laughs> since mm -hmm. 1980, but you know, uh, you know, to be more a little more serious about it, you, you know, it's very difficult to figure out. You know how much memory is left over from five months ago, six months ago, right. three months ago, and so I think ultimately because there's no really way of knowing that. Let's be honest. I think mm -hmm. when you evoke some of these econometric techniques that tell you, look, this is an AR4 process, you go with it, right? And then until now, you do that initially. Now then you're going to test it again. Don't forget, we're not just trying to explain the past. If you go with a framework and you use an AR4 as your assumption to, as a block, and that is what you took out, and that you assume would erase the relevant memory. And then you see you, that's not working predictively. Then you go back to the drawing board. It could be a lot of things while your signal's not working, obviously, right? But if you think it's, it's the issue of leakage um, that, you know, we're, get, we're, we're, we're churning out signals that we think work, but in reality, they're actually, they know they're sort of cheating, if you will, because that memory is retained in what we're using to validate and test our signals. Then you may want to arbitrarily, you know, maybe theory is always there. I mean, this is the last, this is sort of the last step. I would maybe retune my econometric model, actually, because then you always want a justification. Why did we change our block size? Well, we changed our model and the world was carved up in a different way. And now it's an AR6 process. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's a good justification. Again, remember, you may be speaking to colleagues. If you're putting in a paper, you have to justify it. If you're speaking to clients, if they're sophisticated, they may understand what you're talking about in that, in that sense. And so... Um, as a last resort, though, you may have to arbitrarily just extend and extend. But again, the drawback there is that what if you do that? You say, okay, we're just going to have 12 months in between, right, as a block. Mm -hmm. And then you test the signals and they work well for a while predictively. You're making money, but then the signals crash. So you don't know why they crashed. Again, you have to go back to the drawing board. But now the, the, the negative of that is that you, you have no justification for why you picked that 12-month block size to use in your validation, except that uh, it just seemed to work well into, in the test statistics. And then let's say in a pilot or whatever, you know, the first few months of real trading, it worked well. That's okay. That's a decent um, argument. But again, it's not theoretically rooted at all. So there's no way, really way of anchoring an economic intuition, right? Mm -hmm. So again, I would say that um, this kind of hyper heuristic where you just pick a number and you sort of in any, not just in block size selection, but in terms of just uh, any kind of uh, research or model uh, validation, I think is the last resort. I think you should really try to formally express and frame what you're doing as much as you can. Um, because again, at the very least, you could say, well, look, there's a body of research that's, you know, that's econometrics for 60 years that's been going on, 70 years, good, bad, and the ugly. We get it. But at least uh, according to you know, that body of work, uh, this is what we should be doing. And then mm -hmm. if it's still not working, again, I'm talking purely about block size selection, right? So don't, you know, you know, uh, interpret this as extending to every aspect of the model building or signal building process. Um, at least then you can justify it with some kind of a theoretical framework. And what I'm saying is not super academic, because even if you're building uh, a traditional finance uh, model, 
most practitioners at least want to know that it's not totally inconsistent with CAPM and Zama, right. you know, some of the basic sort of accepted uh, truths, if you will, of finance theory. So that's all I'm saying is that if you can, the block size selection should be rooted in some kind of a, uh, if you're using MML, for example, some kind of econometric model that is rigorous. Uh, if that, if, if all else fails, you may want to just try different things, but again, realize at that point that you're basically free form mm-hmm. and there's not really a justification for what you're doing, except that you're getting good test results and then maybe some good trading results initially. But again, you don't know how good that's going to perform over the long term. That's what I'm getting at ultimately, right? Absolutely. So, so, so again, this is my bias. I may be wrong, but I would uh, lean back on, on, on a, some, a little bit of a theoretical girding for the blog. Now, reinforcement learning. Okay. So reinforcement learning, I'm actually writing a couple papers on this right now. Uh, it's very useful, uh, but there's different ways of, of – uh, so reinforcement learning, at, there's, there's sort of uh, – let's define what it is. It means that there is a, a agent, there's a state, and then there's a reward or a punishment for actions taken by that agent in a certain state. However, true, if you will, or genuine reinforcement learning, the actions of that agent will also change the state as well, right? So there's a sort of feedback loop. That's not always, that's good. And it's often applicable to what we're doing, but it often isn't. And there's another kind of a, of a, a framework called a, a multi-arm bandit, a contextual bandit, which many uh, viewers have seen. And that has a state, it has an agent, and it has rewards and punishment, except that the, the actions of the agent do not change the state. So it's almost like a, in between a, a regular multi-arm bandit and a true reinforcement learning algorithm. So I only bring that up only because uh, you have to determine in any application, especially in finance, think about we're, we're individuals, PM teams, researchers, dealing, dealing with a very large market right out there. Some agents like monetary policy authorities may be able to influence the state, mm-hmm. but individual PM teams, even for the largest firms, may not. So you have to determine, do I really use a true reinforcement learning algorithm or framework where the action of the agent can change the state? And again, you have to define what the state is. But many times, we cannot do that. All we can do is navigate our way through different states, get rewards and punishments, and learn from that, right? And so, um, you know, I, I want to get that sort of distinction out. But in terms of reinforcement learning as applicability to finance in general, um, yes, I think it's obviously very relevant because think about it. Any trading um, uh, exercise involves rewards and punishments. You make money, you're at the reward. You lose money, right. you're punished. Yeah. So on the surface of it, um, there is this, it naturally lends itself to re- reinforcement learning. Um, I think, um, uh, and there have been a couple of good papers written about this uh, in the journal, but I think, yeah, I'm very enthusiastic about it. I mean, there are some researchers that I talked to that think it's only reinforcement learning is the only thing we should be using finance. I don't necessarily agree, but I definitely think that uh, it has a role. But I think the one practical insight I can give you, Mikhail, um, is that um, you have to decide before you apply, do you really want to use a reinforcement learning algorithm or is your, is your, is your project or your, the goal of your study really more aligned to a contextual bandit where you really can't influence the state, right? And so that's the practical takeaway. You have to t- determine that, I think, are the agents that you're modeling um, or can they actually, ha- they, uh, inf- can they change the states that they're, they're navigating through, or are they just essentially passive recipients of rewards and punishments based on mm-hmm. their actions, right? So once you make that determination, then you can decide um, what to use. 
The other questions, uh, and we'll go to the next question in a second. Oh, Al, my friend. had one question by Al, uh, which is kind of interesting. You know, do you Mikhail, see? Thank you for your question, by the way. <laughs> uh, do you see MML as being um, um, being able to help with identifying and selecting time-varying subsets of drivers from a large initial universe of candidates, whereby uh, to improve prediction, for example, in an equity portfolio setting? So it's more of a selection kind of a thing. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, depends on what MMA, is that your question or is that from a... Uh, I was one of the questions from one of okay. the... Yeah, so. yeah no, uh, uh, yeah, so I look, I mean, depends on how sophisticated you want to get around. I mean, thinking about something like Lasso, right? Mm -hmm. So Lasso, I mean, I've done this myself. So I, I had a, a thing, I was building a strategy a, a few years ago with one of my analysts and I asked her to essentially go to the Bloomberg. This really happened, right? This is an anecdote. And essentially I said, pick out these indices. So I gave her like 45, you know, credit spread indices and equity factor, you know, all the stuff that you may think in a multi-portfolio. And she brought them back to me and I said, okay, just download those. And now let's apply Lasso and let's select eight of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if for the, for the audience members that don't know what Lasso does, essentially what it does is it picks out uh, factors that on the one hand have the highest explanatory power, but on the other hand, are the least correlated with the other factors in the larger set that you are analyzing, okay? So at least in the linear context, it gives you a nice parsimony. I love that word, parsimonious set of factors um, within a larger uh, 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 set of, of factors, but it's also beneficial because, for example, relative to PCA, uh, the factors are intuitive, right? So you're using the S&P 500, that's it. That's what it's going to be, right? You don't have to interpret anything as PC1. So there's that, Okay. So that's something I think Lasso is something I utilize a lot. I would recommend utilizing it in its various forms, right? Uh, I actually am a big adherent uh, of it. Beyond that, I think you have to be careful because here's why. So uh, I mentioned this in, in published work before. There's the, there's the seduction of a lot of machine learning techniques like random forest, for example, where you can dump in 55 factors and it's going to tell you essentially, you know, feature importance and, and so on. And you can say, oh, okay, I get it. This is uh, not important. That's very important. Let's dump these. I'm not saying don't do that. But you have to remember that when you dump in a bunch of factors, random forest, the algorithm has no idea what the economic relationship is mm -hmm. between things, okay? So you could be uh, dumping in, you know, uh, um, you know, the unemployment rate in Spain, to the price of cotton being sold in Uzbekistan and you've so on and so forth and put that all in and you get some kind of what seems to be on the surface mm -hmm. viable results. So what I'm saying is not to do, not, not to never, it's not, I'm not saying never use uh, machine learning um, frameworks to, to do feature selection or feature construction. What I'm saying is be careful. So what it may be, uh, be beneficial to do at least initially is to utilize well-known factors. So for example, in the paper I wrote in the first issue of JFDS, we looked at Family French Carhartt. And the mm -hmm. whole goal of that was to say, look, we know that this stuff has been studied for years. Whether you love it or hate it, or you can debunk it, that's not the point. The point is that the investment world knows about these factors. They have some merit because they've survived for all these years, right? Let's be honest about that. There's some insight there. Um, so let's see how the random forest algorithm handles them. What does it tell us about them? How can we utilize them maybe better with this more sophisticated framework versus a traditional mm -hmm. framework? But we, what we didn't do, because the paper was already 15 pages, it would have been 35, was to essentially 
generate brand new factors ourselves. Now we could have done that. I'm not recommending against it. What I'm saying is that in, in ML and AI and financial data science, there's always an interpretability issue. It's massive because mm-hmm. often dealing with traditional finance practitioners that will wholesale reject results if they don't make sense. And so what it may, it may behoove um, practitioners to at least initially um, utilize um, more well-known factors and try to use them in different ways or improve upon them using mm-hmm. machine learning and data science rather than inventing factors whole cloth. Now I'm talking about more medium and longer horizon investors. If you're high frequency, then go at it, right? Because you're, you're basically discovering factors on a daily basis. I'm not even talking about that. But for the more medium and long-term horizon investors, which are the bulk of the universe, I would think, um, I would say that be careful. Not Don't do it, but make sure that whenever you're trying to displace a traditional factor with a machine learning derived one, that you've actually crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's in terms of validation, economic intuition, and so on, because the results can be very bad if you haven't done that, right? Versus going with what you know better, at least you know the economic drivers behind it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think I want to touch upon a little bit about the, the whole notion of interpretability. And, you know, we're kind of covering some of these themes as a part of the summer school. Yeah. Uh, one of the challenges which, uh, you know, some of the students have brought up, and I've also had, um, you know, this discussion with folks. Um, uh, so you have the technical, you know, interpretability measures, right? So, yeah. you know, you, if you kind of just look at the research in the last few years, you know, there has been a lot of discussion on how do you interpret the model? How do you interpret the results? How do you interpret the networks? And there's been a lot of technical discussion, but I think the economic intuition is completely missing there, especially when you're kind of, you know, evaluating the models based on just the technical aspects of that. I think in financial services, we come from a different perspective than like the pure, you know, uh, machine learning folks, if you will, who are primarily looking at it, you know, optimizing a particular metric or optimizing a particular you know, uh, thing. So, how do you how do you kind of see, you know, the financial industry adopting these explainability and uh, interpretability measures? Uh, because there's a lot of push from the vendors wanting you to adopt it, but uh, many a times there's a whole education. I would call it like machine learning plus plus because you're kind of learning a whole new lingo and language. And how do you even interpret these models? Because often it's so new. I just want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is one of the best questions. So look, um, it's I'll, here's the bad news. It's hard. <laughs> okay, it's a real issue. I've got I've got a light. I've got a light at the end of the tunnel. Don't worry about it. But 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 before I get to the light, let me tell you the dark side of the story. It's hard because again, think about the output of an OLS regression versus a random forest. It's wholly different. I mean, look, there is obviously a sensitivity, right? So you put in um, predictor variables and you have a target variable and you can say, okay, when this happens, here's the sensitivity. But there are no test statistics in the same way that you have in OLS regression. You don't have a beta, mm-hmm. right? So what? So 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 it, it, it's a real issue and it's something that everybody has to work on. Here's the good news. I did this in the first paper. Again, I mentioned, you know, when I applied uh, random forest to um, – Fama French Carhartt, believe it or not, out of all the technical stuff in that paper, and there's a lot of stuff, there's even a brand new trading strategy and a lot of things. I even use, I, I combined um, random forest with uh, association rule learning, which is another machine learning framework, yeah. right? So a lot of technical stuff in that paper. What took me the longest was to actually come up with something I eventually called a pseudo beta, mm-hmm. which is a way of basically interpreting 
the um, output of a random forest for somebody who's used to, let's say, PC or OLS. And essentially what it does is it assumes that the, right. uh, the outputs, let's say for four factors, are independent, just like in a regression where you can, you know, basically adjust everything up and down like knobs. And then, you know, it takes feature importance and so on. It does a few arithmetic operations, really. It's actually very simple what I did. Mm-hmm. And, but in the paper, I make clear, do not trade with this. I say, we say it's only for communication purposes. So, mm-hmm. as a, so here, a couple of conclusions. One is that um, at times the, 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 the bridge is often, uh, sorry, the gap is often unbridgeable right? in terms of you just can't make the output. Because think about it, a random forest, all the interaction effects, all that stuff is, is there. It's, it's, it's baked in the output, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like an OLS regression. Right. It's right. even it's even unlike an OS regression with interaction terms, right? It's just, just, right. just, just different. The nonlinearities are baked in, all that stuff. So, you know, but you can do things like a pseudo beta like I did and make it understandable to let's say non-ML people or sort of traditional mm-hmm. finance people. But again, you have to keep in mind that you have to tell them this is not what we're gonna trade with, this information. We're gonna actually trade with the actual information that comes out of the machine, but right. just so you understand that. So that's the one takeaway. The second takeaway is that there is not enough effort being put on into this at all. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think this also extends to papers that are written. So, you know, a lot of times uh, when we see papers in the journal, a lot of times the, the papers that we do publish are technically very good and you have to publish them because they're good. I mean, they're, you know, for people who understand this, they're very good, but there's just not enough effort on the understandability of, right. of, of the, the, the answers. And also, I think this is a side note for the other researchers out there. Always keep in mind, and this is what I do. So in, in MML, the paper, I used a very, uh, I used Filardo's regime switching model. It's very basic. It's a slight extension of Hamilton's, number one. I used K, K um, nearest neighbor regression, which is very easy to understand. And mm-hmm. I used the propagation was slightly sophisticated. But the point was, if MML has any value, that paper and that idea, it's the conceptual value of, oh, you can actually use them in this way to do something. And also the fact that I attacked the fundamental law. What I'm trying to get at is that research often focus on technical innovation, where that's really not what drives any science. It's usually conceptual innovation. Okay. So you even think about the the, the theory of relativity, you know, Einstein took Riemann's geometry. He took a Planck's uh, discoveries, other, other people that they were doing various things. I'm not discounting the genius. What I'm saying is the brilliance and the genius there is the putting together of disparate elements, mm-hmm. the conceptual breakthrough and saying, oh, I've got the technical means to actually articulate this very revolutionary message. So mm-hmm. I would advise more researchers to put emphasis on the conceptual innovation side of what you're doing versus the technical innovation side. Because here's the other truth about it. There are special, like you said, in machine learning itself, there right. are specialists in te- the technical aspects. You, we, we as, as, as applied practitioners shouldn't, shouldn't necessarily waste as much, or waste not a good word, or expend as much time on trying to outdo the pure machine learning researchers in machine learning. What right. we have to do is take what they're doing, modify and apply in ways that can actually help us and our clients make money, which mm-hmm. is essentially our ultimate goal, right? And if we do that, then there's a huge victory. And also as a secondary piece of sort of, um, uh, of, 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 um, uh, added value. I think because I view uh, financial data science as being in the tradition of econometrics, almost sort of taking the baton from traditional econometrics in a way, although still utilizing ma- ma- many aspects of it, um, you have to always think, okay, 
how can I make this better than what is being used? Let's say Garch or whatever it is, but also speak to the insights. So I'll give you an example. I, I, you know, as an editor and even as a financial investment practitioner, I never want to see a paper that says, oh, we put these neural networks up against Garch and I'm not going to really go into a lot of the intuition behind it, but it beats Garch and therefore you should use it. No, what I want to say is, look, let's acknowledge that Bolerslev and Engel, there's an insight there that the, the long-term variance, the, the, the various elements that go into uh, the squared residual, the near-term variance that go into Garch, those three factors, if you will. There's mm-hmm. an insight there. I'm going to build on that insight. And you, on that basic foundation, if you build all the sophisticated machine learning, then I'll, I want to hear what you're saying. So I think that is the only way that you can speak to traditional econometrics. You say, look, we recognize the insights that, that has been provided by this field. We're not going to take it the next step forward. So I think that's what I think practitioners and, and, and even academic researchers should focus a little bit more on is the conceptual breakthroughs, A, and B, or insights, and B, uh, how to connect the dots with traditional econometrics and economics. Because if you don't do that, we're going to just be sort of isolated in what we're doing. And this is related to this interpretability question as well, because, again, you ha- nobody's going – I mean, would you, would you invest in a strategy you didn't understand at all? Or <laughs> – or nobody, right? There's a few firms Somebody out there. I understood it. I don't understand it. <laughs> there's a few firms based on performance that have been able to do that. And there's obviously unique uh, reasons right. why. But in general, that is not going to be the case. And who knows? Maybe even those firms are telling their clients more than we know, right? right. There's the NDA. I, I, you know, there's, there's right. a lot of things you can do to, to have those, those private interactions. But in general, most people are not going to give money to anybody where they have no idea what's how the money is being, at least in a general way. I don't mean the details. That's obviously proprietary. So I think all of that uh, speaks to the business that when you can interpret things, um, then your results and your research is going to be much more embraced by your colleagues and clients and the wider research community at large. So, absolutely, this this was, this was a perfect uh, you know answer uh, just because I kind of shared many of those views. And uh, I think we are running out of time. I wish we could extend this discussion to another hour. Yeah, I see I more questions. Uh, guys, just email me on uh, LinkedIn or something. I can answer <laughs> offline. Absolutely. I think we covered all the questions which were on the forum. Yeah. And uh, if there are any other questions, feel free to email us and we will share it with uh, Joseph. So okay. I'm just going to make one last announcement. Uh, thank you so much again, Joseph. This was an excellent presentation. Um, so we are going to make all the videos and the slides. Joseph presented today on the Q Academy site. You should have gotten a link uh, to the slides and also the video. And uh, next week, we're going to continue the journey uh, primarily to bring in transparency and uh, more discussions on model governance. And next week, we're going to have a discussion with uh, Dr. Agus uh, Sujianto. He uh, leads corporate model risk efforts at uh, Wells Fargo. Uh, uh, Agus and I, we had a great discussion uh, in the days we could travel uh, in January in San Francisco and uh, he has some very good insights and uh, they're also doing some excellent work in bringing in some cutting edge technologies and machine learning and deep learning into the investment practice and uh, we'll hear from Agus and uh, continue the discussion. Uh, thank you so much again for making the time and again thanks so much Joseph for uh, spending the afternoon with us and discussing uh, these amazing topics and I'd love to kind of continue the discussion offline with you. And uh, we will continue the summer school and uh, continue the discussion next week. Thank you again. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Q podcast. Subscribe to the Q podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anchor.fm/qpodcast. Till next week, goodbye.